This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. In the 1970s, New York City was a very different place than it is today. Crime was rampant with murders, violent robberies, and felonies taking place in record numbers. Tourists were afraid to visit, and some residents were even afraid to venture outside of their neighborhoods. So what changed? How did New York go from one of the most notoriously dangerous cities in the country to the safest big city in America? Well, that's the subject of a new documentary titled Gotham, The Fall and Rise of New York, available on demand on iTunes and Prime Video. The film examines the legacies of New York City's mayors from 1966 to 2013 to show how, through hard work and innovation, New York's leaders were able to turn the city around. Here's a quick preview. Behind the famous Manhattan skyline, New York is a mess. You had to literally fear for your life. It was terrible. The city wasn't safe. There was a lot of crime. There was a lot of graffiti. Half a million serious crimes reported, murders, rapes, robberies, burglaries, thefts. It was just bedlam. In the 70s, the consensus view was that schools didn't make a difference. 1.2 million people on welfare. It was a great sense that the city cannot work. It can't be governed. It can't function. It's going up in flames from crime. Kids aren't learning. The schools are crumbling. And I'm saying to myself, like, wow, how did we get here? The early 90s was an exciting period because people are fed up with the fag, both on the federal level and on the local level. People are open-minded, they're willing to talk to each other across the aisle. There's a sense that the ungovernable city is no longer ungovernable, that reforms are possible. The city could be made safer, be made better, to take back the streets of New York. And by focusing on the small things, we disrupted bigger things from happening. And so it changed people's perception of what welfare could be, a job opportunity, not a way of life. After being stuck around 50% for 20 years, it's now about 77% kids graduate on time. We had 20 years of Giuliani and Bloomberg, and the crowning glory of what we got out of those 20 years was that the streets were no longer disorderly. Joining me now are the creative minds behind Gotham, the fall and rise of New York, Matthew Taylor, the film's writer and director, Michelle Taylor, the film's producer, and Peter Cole, the executive producer. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to ask you the, the question, which is always the first question I ask for documentary film producers. And Peter, I'm going to go to you first, if I can. Why this film and why now? Well, Larry Moan, uh, who was head of the Manhattan Institute, where many of these ideas came from, and my wife, Lee Bowes, and I, who ran America Works, you'll see a bit of that when they see the, uh, the movie. And we will talk um, about that, by the way, Peter, in, in the back end. Great. Uh, we were sitting and talking, and Larry said, you know, 
things change in a city, but no one knows who the people were that made the difference. He said, I want to do a documentary about who the people were that made the difference in New York from the 70s until the 2000s. And we all sat down and said, that's a great idea. And we start to think, who were those people? And that's basically how it began. And and Matthew, you first and then Michelle, what intrigued you about this? What made you say, hey, this, this is a project we want to work on? Well, you know, I have a huge interest in New York City history. We had already been in development on a project on Robert Moses when we were approached about this project. So our headspace was really in the history. Um, that history overlaps with this history because, of course, Robert Moses was kicked out during the Lindsay administration, which is where our film begins. Um, and so when we were approached with the film, it was originally the idea that we need to commemorate and show the process and how these how these people did the things they did to turn around. Probably, I, I think it's the greatest American turnaround in American history. Um, but then, of course, a couple of months later, COVID would strike and the production would be delayed and the cities around the country, not just New York, would start to decline. And so the project took on a different scope. Um, originally, it was primarily focused in, in a certain area. We decided to expand it out to a much larger scope. So you would see a very detailed uh, idea of or, or concept of how the city descended into where it got. Because a lot of people just don't know the, the 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 dirty details of how it got there and they definitely don't know the details of how it came out of that that decline yeah I, michelle let me come to you for this and it sort of ties into what we just talked about and that is and, and matthew mentioned this you start the film in the 70s right mm-hmm. and, and i'm going to get to mayor Lindsay in a second uh, some some things about him that are are depicted in this but give us for those folks watching this who weren't around in new york city in the 70s give us a, a capsulization what was it like in terms of crime and everyday life yes i actually think that's an interesting question for me i also was not there in new york i'm a californian oh. and moved to the east coast my goal was always to live in new york i fell in love with it first through movies um seeing it growing up so I had always wanted to live there and I finally did get to move there in 2014 and over time saw it kind of fall apart. And so it was kind of like a myth to me that 70s and 80s, it was a little bit in the movies, a little bit in kind of some of the mythology of New York City, but I really wasn't familiar myself at all with what was going on in the city. And so delving in with this documentary was kind of a eye-opening, crazy experience. And it was insane that the highest crime year in New York City's history had 2,200 murders a year in a city at the time that only had about 7.7 million people. So you had less people by quite a bit than you do today with a massive number uh, murder rate, plus over 500,000 felonies per year, robberies and burglaries. People just didn't feel safe, both in the subways but on the streets. And they didn't feel the ownership of the city. They couldn't go about their daily lives without a constant fear of crime, disorder, you know, different things causing them to that. And I think we see that with the people left. Businesses started fleeing. Economic opportunity just declined drastically. And then that led to, you know, empty storefronts that led to empty buildings that led to the city having to take over neighborhoods and without having the resources or the time to really kind of build them up in any decent way. So it was just this whole kind of economic collapse that started happening one thing after another in the city. And really no one was able to figure out where, what do we do and where do we go? It was kind of a frustrating moment with everyone looking at each other, but no one, A, with the political courage or, or with even an idea of yeah. where, how to get it back. Yeah. Jack, uh, Jack, I'm, I'm, Peter, go Jack, ahead. 
Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, I, w- I was there in the 70s. Right. And I remember that we used to put signs in the car windows that said no radio in the car because the radios used to be able to be pulled out and you'd have a right. sign there so nobody would smash in your window. Yeah, two, two quick stories. I had a radio busted out and taken from yeah. my car. I was yeah. driving a little a 1962 Volkswagen. I was in law school at the time. I'm thinking, really? You need to take this? <laughs> but the other story is I walked by a car one time and I saw the window busted out with the sign saying no radio and whoever busted the window had penciled on it, just checking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and I mentioned to you all off camera, I, you know, I went to, to law school in New York City in the early 70s and my first day and I knew New York City. I'd grown up in the in Jersey Shore. I went there a lot. And the first day I'm taking a, a, a subway in New York City and a guy comes up with a knife and wants to rob me. And I'm thinking, welcome to New York City and my law school experience here. Uh, let's talk and let's go back to something, Michelle, you said. And Peter, I'll ask you this first about, you know, and Peter, you mentioned who were the people involved. And, and we, you start off in the film and it's a wonderful film. Um, it's, it's detailed and provocative, evocative. But you start off with John Lindsay. Why start with John Lindsay and what was important to you in putting this together about his impact on crime? Well, I met John Lindsay when he was mayor and he was impressive. And it was in the Kennedy style. And we all felt that he was going to bring to New York the change that we were all hoping for. And the trouble was he had no clue. He really didn't have any idea of how to change the city. And he didn't have the uh, political courage to do what ult- ultimately what Giuliani did. Uh, so what what changed was his ability to present himself. Uh, but that didn't help at all. If if you look at um, John Lindsay, and as you mentioned, I had met him also when I was in college. Um, I was at Yale. He had gone to Yale. He came up. He was talking about you know the, the city's problems, and and he was, it was very Kennedy esque in terms yeah, very of much. The, as a gentleman, as a very smart man. Uh, mm-hmm. But during the time he was there, talk about also what assistance, if any, um, Matthew. Maybe I'll ask you this. Was the city getting from the, the federal government? And you talk about this in the film, and people might remember some headlines in the papers, but give us a sense of that. Well, you know, this is also the same era as LBJ's reforms, civil rights movements, and a number of other things. So <clears throat> Lindsay, of course, was glomming on to those concepts, which, of course, a lot of these these things that were happening socially and racially were very important to, to advance equality. Um, the problem was, is John Lindsay thought that New York City had unlimited money. Um, and so he just spent money out of control on things that that were not helpful to the, to the city. You know, he also told his police chief, as we say in the film, to stop going after narcotics crime to to help minorities. But, you know, it is linked that not going after narcotics with the police and and cr- crime, violent crime are linked. And so the murder rate under his under his administration went from roughly 600 to 1700 people per year. And that number would not break until roughly 1995. Um, I mean, that's a long period of time to have. That's a lot of people who died um, in that in that 30 year period. And he just was completely um, ignorant of all of the kinds of, you know, disasters that, that these super agencies were causing. And it would put New York City into 
a financial crisis for for over a decade, and it wouldn't pull out till Koch, you know, because we do mention Beam very very briefly, and we kind of right. treat third term of of Lindsay, but you know, he he was a, a, extremely nice guy. Um, but it wasn't what the city needed at the time, and that disaster would would continue on into the 90s. You mentioned Ed Koch. So, Michelle, it's a fascinating array of political figures, indeed characters, who have been mayors of New York City throughout its history, and certainly in this ne- nearly 50-year period that you're focusing on. Uh, so Ed Koch comes along then, and often you know, referring to himself as the quintessential New Yorker. Talk a little bit about Ed Koch and his impact on crime. I think the one thing about Ed Koch that um, is important to remember is everyone mostly loved him. <laughs> he was a very beloved mayor. He was New York. I think a lot of the public felt that until his third term, which uh, people started getting frustrated with his la- not focusing on New York's problems. But um, Ed Koch was able to get the fiscal house in order. And I think that was kind of the most one of the most important things that he did. Start the economic turnaround of the city slowly but surely. But however, he really wasn't able to get a handle on crime. It did just keep going up and up each year. Um, they tried maybe a few different things, but I do think Koch's priority was also looking at just that Love of New York, love of New York, New Yorkers have for the city. But then um, bringing that back because it was kind of in a more economic malaise to an extent under both Lindsay and Beam. But so he brought back a vibrancy to the city and he helped also just kind of um, usher in a little bit more of an exciting period. Not Wall Street was on its way up. Um, people were starting to kind of want to move back to the city. But the crime, unfortunately, even then was just going up and up and it was having huge consequences for New Yorkers. David Dinkins comes in, the first African-American mayor here. Uh, Peter, I'll ask you to to weigh in on this. And what changes did he bring with him, either positive or negative impacts on crime? I saw none. Um, I saw him uh, acting in a a very traditional liberal way uh, to look at crime. And that was not working. And we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But his ability to come in and try to run the city was on a on a, a political and theoretical level not viable for the time. Why not, Peter? What what, what was it that wasn't working? Uh, well, that's what we asked ourselves later on. Uh, why are things not working? Why is crime not going down? Why is welfare not going down? Why do we have schools that are a wreck? And we started to look at ourselves and we said, Something is wrong. And I'll tell you what basically was wrong was it was all tethered to ideology that was based pretty liberally uh, and was not based in reality. I'm going to get to some of the other mayors and some of those other concepts here. But you you also talk about something that many New Yorkers today would have no idea what you're talking about. Right. That was the Board of Estimate. In, in New York City. And you talk about the power that the borough leaders had as opposed to the city council and, and you know, this this influence wielded by the Board of Estimate. And I suspect a number of people are watching this right now and saying, what is the Board of Estimate? Matthew, Michelle, one of you, what was the Board of Estimate and how was it impacted? Matthew, and how was it impacting this whole issue? Yes. So it's interesting, as I was going through all of the, the content and information, 
what struck me was the board of estimate is, in my opinion, is the most important part of the film in many ways. And it's funny because a lot of people said, why are we talking about Including this? Including me. I was like, I don't think this it is was an obscure, <laughs> obscure thing that happened. It's just a changing of a governance board, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as one of the major, major pivot points that brought the city under control. And to give the audience a general idea is that you had a board of of 11 people and it was made of, of each borough president, the city council speaker, the competent controller and the mayor, and they each had two votes. And what they would do is if, you know, Queens wanted a school, they'd have to get more votes and they have to kind of go into the smoky dark rooms and make these deals. So what it became was this thing where each borough president only cared about their borough. They cared about nothing citywide at all. They cared about police in their borough, uh, hospitals in their borough. They didn't, you know, Brooklyn didn't care about Staten Island. They, they just, they, and so it made the city kind of a, a smoky backroom deal. Peter Vallone, when he came into office in 1974, said, this is absurd. Um, of course, he said, you know, why does Staten Island, which has over 300,000 people, get the same vote as Brooklyn with roughly 2.2, 2.3 million people? And so he went after the Board of Estimate to take it down. It would take 17 years to break the Board of Estimate. And in 1989, the Supreme Court would throw it out based on the fact that it should be one man, one vote. And effectively, the city council was created. I think at the time it was 54 seats. Um, so what this did is it, the mayor was roughly irrelevant in the votes. It was a weak mayor system mm -hmm. and it created a strong mayor system. It gave the city council the ability to legislate as a legislative body, and it gave the mayor actual power over all sorts of things. And I mean, every all uh, the film doesn't even cover the extent of the power that the mayor got out of this. And so in this change, um, the first thing that would happen was Staten Island would lose its power. And in, and in you know the 90s, they actually voted to secede and won. And Giuliani, during his second run, uh, basically was able to, to pull Staten Island from the brink, and they put him over by 3,500 votes. So the Board of Estimate effectively helped elect Rudy Giuliani by a tiny, tiny number. But then once he had power, um, he was able to work with Peter Vallone, who became the first speaker of the, of the city council. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot. He's a Democrat and Rudy Giuliani is a Republican. And they were able to actually rush through extremely complicated legislation very quickly. And because the mayor now had power, he could sit there and help with everything from crime reform to welfare reform. All of these things were linked. And a lot of the mechanisms that linked them together were, you know, whether whether the mayor would allow, allow a budget to work or, you know, there's a lot of political infrastructure that came into play. But this would be probably the single most powerful change uh, to restoring governance to the mayor in this in the yeah. history of New York City. Um, yeah. And then, of course, Bloomberg would continue by getting control of the schools. Yeah. Um, let me let me jump in for one second, because and then we'll we will get to Bloomberg. But I, again, fascinated by this, the role and how how getting rid of this impacted so many things, including fine, uh, crime. And, and uh, Matthew, you, you mentioned Rudy Giuliani. Right. And mm -hmm. Peter, I'll bring you in on this also. Um, uh, a a reputation as a crime fighter. I first met Rudy when he was the U.S. attorney, and I had a case going on in, in, in the courts there about Wall Street insider trading cases. And anybody who follows him know he was an effective prosecutor. He becomes the mayor. And, and talk about, Peter, talk about 
his his personality. We Matthew mentioned the the technical changes, but talk about how he approached the issue of crime in New York City and and how it was impacted based upon his approach. Well, I have more familiarity with him with welfare and how he approached that. And if you don't mm. mind, I'd, I'd like to uh, segue to that for a moment. Sure. Uh, I, I remember him coming into one of our offices where we had many welfare recipients. And he and he went in there for about an hour. He was, he was running for mayor. And he was trying to figure out how to govern. And he came out and he looked at me and he said, you know, Peter, they really want to work, don't they? And he had walked into that. He had walked into that room as a conservative Republican, believing they were bums and that they didn't want to work. And so my feeling about him at the time was this man's willing to change his mind. He's willing to look at how, to, how you go about doing things. So as, as for crime, his ability to latch on to ideas from the Manhattan Institute uh, that really made a difference in crime uh, and others can talk to that better than yeah. I. But but uh, broken windows uh, as a theory was a key thing. Let me ask him, Michelle, you can jump in on this. Uh, Commissioner Bill Bratton during that time, his first time as commissioner, along with uh, Mayor Giuliani and this notion of, of broken windows policing. Explain quickly, what was that and and how effective was that? Broken windows is kind of a unique idea that if you see a broken window in a neighborhood, it kind of gives the idea to people walking by that no one really cares about that neighborhood. And that's the first step in kind of just additional crime or activities happening that are negative in that neighborhood. If you fix a window immediately, it shows that, that people live on the streets, people are happy, people want to take care of the neighborhood. And so then criminal activity tends to stay away. So that's very much in a nutshell. Uh, Mayor Giuliani and uh, Commissioner Bratton kind of took this idea and put it on steroids more or less throughout the city and really focused on first kind of crime and disorder at the street level. Um, Commissioner Bratton says that one thing that he would go to the community meetings with all of his statistics and like, oh, crime's going down here and this. And he's like, all people were asking me is like, well, what about the broken car that hasn't been moved outside? What about the prostitute on the corner? What about, you know, the criminal gangs that are like, you know, coming out at night? That's what they wanted fixed because that's what people saw. And that was their experience day to day. It was a heavy crime rate, 2,200 murders a year, but n still in a city of 8 million that most people were not seeing the murders every single day themselves, but they were seeing the disorder. And by going after the disorder first and cleaning it up, people began to feel safe. They began to feel like this was their home. They began to feel like they wanted to go out. They would go out with their kids. Parks were being cleaned up. And that had a massive change in the way people thought about the city and then wanting to engage with the city. There was an there example. Was pushback. There was, let, me, Peter, let me just mention it for a second. I want to get yeah. to a couple of things before we run out of time here. There was pushback. It was effective. But as you know, and you talk about it in the film, there was pushback about is this directed too much at, at, at certain communities of color? Um, looking at it, and, and Peter, maybe you might jump in, looking at it then and the pushback, the criticisms, is there a belief that that broken windows policing and approaches would be effective today? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Oh, who are you talking to? I'm sorry. You go, Peter, you jump in and anybody no, else jump in. No, absolutely. I mean, their whole theory worked very well. One of the things they noticed was the people who jumped over the turnstiles in the subways were people who were more likely to commit further crimes, worse crimes. And so, yes, it would work very well, but it was pushed back and, and appropriately at different points it was pushed back because it was very aggressive and it perhaps was a little too aggressive near the end. Yeah.
Yeah. Let me jump. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say there's so much in this documentary. It's so wonderful. We're not going to get to we're not going to have a chance to talk about Mayor Bloomberg, about stop asking frisk. But you do deal with that, um, both the effectiveness and the criticism of stop asking frisk here. But before I lose you, I've just got a couple of minutes here. Um, uh, Peter, one of the things talked about is the company that you had started called America Works. Tell yes. us about that and the impact that that has had. Well, the difference in what we did from what had been done before was that we said people really want to go to work. They don't want to be sitting in classrooms. They don't, they've been failed by the educational systems. So what we said is get them into a job, get them working and give them all the support they need. They need daycare, if they need help in housing, whatever it was, if there's an abusive maid at home, but get them working. And the difference was that people went to work as opposed to the past 40 years in welfare where they kept going up and up and up. What was very interesting when the 1966 law was passed, welfare reform that, that uh, uh, President Clinton and Newt Gingrich worked on, welfare reform made such a difference within 10 years, the welfare rules went down 60% in this country because people were told if you if you have a, a, a daycare and you're able-bodied and there's a job, you got to go to work. An interesting an illustration of bipartisan. And as always, those yes. of us who, who grew up new in that era, around in that era, knew that there was a lot of headbutting going on, certainly between President Clinton and Newt Gingrich. But eventually, yeah. they sat down and they worked some things out. I got I got one minute left here. So I'm going to ask one of you, and I'll let you all decide who's going to be. But, but what lessons do you want folks to take from this documentary? Who wants to jump in? Matthew? I, I think the movie shows that if you can turn New York City around, you can turn any city around because it's mm -hmm. already been done. It was the hardest city, had the highest welfare numbers, highest crime, highest everything. Everything is bigger and better in New York, including crime and disaster. <laughs> no, every city can learn from this, every mayor. Uh, we just need to realign incentives to make sure that these governmental bodies do what they're designed to do. And that's really what the film shows. And I guess also the notion of people willing to work together uh, yes. across political aisles for a greater good. Well, once again, the, the film is called Gotham, The Fall and Rise of New York. And as I said before, it is a wonderful documentary. It does what documentaries should do. It informs us and it makes us think. So I want to thank all of you, first of all, for the work you did yeah. and for joining us today. You all be well now. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.